Welcome to the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. This podcast aims to explore issues and challenges as well as ideas and solutions leading to strengthening support for mental wellness and recovery. My name is Alexa Bull, the Senior Knowledge Broker at Step Care Solutions, and I will be your host for this episode. In today's episode, we will discuss accessing support for mental health problems and illnesses, barriers to seeking help, and strategies to overcome them. We will explore shifting our thinking about mental health support and how we access it. So addressing factors that are affecting whether or not people are able to access appropriate supports for their mental health when they need them is important in helping us address mental health concerns more effectively across systems and to build on individual resilience and the strengths of communities. In 2018, an estimated 5.3 million people in Canada reported they needed support for their mental health in the previous year. Of these, 43% reported having their needs only partially met or not met at all. This means that nearly half of people needing help did not get the help that they needed. Some of the documented barriers to accessing mental health and addiction services in Canada were reported as not knowing where to go for help, long wait times, culture and language barriers, concerns about stigma, inequities, and cost. On an international level, a recent Forbes article entitled Almost Half of Americans Don't Seek Professional Help for Mental Disorders reports that across 10 countries surveyed, 58% of people experiencing a mental health problem or illness did not seek help for clinical level mental health challenges. The percentages range from 45% not seeking professional help in the US and Australia to 81% not doing so in Nigeria. When respondents were asked the reasons for not seeking professional help, the responses included a preference for self-help, a lack of knowledge of what kind of help to seek or where to get it, a lack of confidence in mental health treatment, stigma, and of course, cost. Today, we are here with Dr. Peter Cornish, founder of the StepCare 2.0 methodology and current president of StepCare Solutions. He has provided mental health system consultation and on-site training to over 250 organizations across North and South America. He is an honorary research professor at Memorial University and the director of counseling and psychological services at the University of California, Berkeley. He is also the principal investigator for a CIHR Transitions in Care four-year research grant aimed at digitizing and evaluating StepCare 2.0 in three Canadian provinces. We are looking forward to discussing why some of these barriers in accessing support for mental health exist and how we might approach overcoming them. So Peter, welcome to our very first podcast. We are so excited to have you with us today. And we're looking forward to asking you a few questions. Absolutely. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I like answering questions and having conversations. Awesome. So my first question around access is, you know, polling and research tells us that worldwide, there's there are reasons beyond stigma that are actually keeping people from reaching out for help or for accessing the help they need even when they do reach out. So in your experience, where do you think some of these barriers are coming from? 
I think there's there's multiple barriers and 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 stigma is a multifaceted thing as well. And and so much of our care system, at least in North America and Europe, is based on a, a Eurocentric model of care, quite uh, tied to medicine. Some would say it's a a colonial approach to care that's that's sort of top top-down type of expert-driven. And, and because of that, it doesn't necessarily fit with our increasingly diverse communities' needs. A, a, a model that's uh, been, or models that have been developed primarily through research in ideas and uh, structures that have really favored privileged minorities, uh, if you will, in the global scheme of things, are quite narrow, and even even our research foundation that we, we that we develop our programs on and our, our professions that have drawn from this research, they're really drawing from limited ideas on about what contributes to healing and actual techniques of of uh, to support mental health. The the research that that supports those techniques doesn't draw upon wisdom. Uh, the broad wisdom that is that is shared through through our entire population. Healing, what contributes to well-being, should not be determined solely by a few narrow professions. There's no monopoly on what uh, makes people happy and what uh, creates conditions for wellness that that professionals should have. And and so, given that power structures that have set up care are so narrow, not everyone is going to feel um, that that what is offered fits their needs. So there's two, this, this sort of short answer to the question is the uh, options at the table um, that we, the table of care or the table of support that are offered by uh either insurers or, or government uh, uh, publicly funded services uh, or private practitioners, um, the menu is is much too thin. And so uh, why would everybody come to that table? That's really interesting. I think you, you brought up a good point about, um, you know, the options at the table being so limited. And, you know, you spoke about people really not having a breadth of choice and being able to access things that are appropriate for their own lives. And you spoke a lot about the diversity of the, of the population there and, you know, that we're so limited in scope sometimes within the mental health system. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how maybe some of these systems that, and structures that are existing in such a way can be changed to increase access and also help folks to connect to the types of resources and services they want and need to be able to support their mental health. A couple of thoughts I have on that. Some are sort of principles and I, I think goals that that would be longer term. And, and one that I think of is that we, we simply need to think about broadening the tent of what constitutes healing supports and wellness supports uh, to include both formal and traditional supports, as well as some that are informal, natural, and existing in communities. And, and these informal supports might, might be, are, are different in, in a variety of communities. 
Now, in order to stimulate interest in this, this approach, one question that often comes up from all parties, whether that be funders or healthcare providers or uh, people that are seeking help, is what assurances can you give me that these programs have are, are, are quality programs? And, and there's a tension there because if you get too rigid on controlling quality, the problem is by 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 whose definition is this quality? And even things like programs that show that symptoms are reduced, uh, while that's wonderful, is that the only thing we want to measure? So it gets quite complicated is how are you going to term, determine something as quality? It isn't simply a symptom remission. It, it requires a look at, at functioning and satisfaction, well-being and resilience. So there's so many different things that we can measure. And part of decolonizing mental health requires an effort at decolonizing research. And, and by that, I mean, we need to, we need to be much more open about what constitutes evidence. And typically in, in mental health fields, we've followed a narrow uh, type of quantitative evidence that's derived from, in fact, a, a quite a narrow view of science. So physicists and, and astrophysicists and quantum physicists will, will often use broader sort of uh, tools and, and methodologies sometimes than psychologists do. And, and uh, so, you know, bringing in qualitative methodology, learning from what anthropologists use to, to, to get a sense of, of what is culturally relevant and learning, you know, speak, having conversations with our diverse population about what it is, how is it that they measure success? Uh, broadening the the tent on that. Once we've done that, then an important feature of a of a, a a broadened care system or a broader buffet of options is that you 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 have a commitment to do what what I call um, there's lots of terms for this, but putting in a system for uh, collecting practice based evidence. So whether your practice is a natural healing process by an Indigenous elder, whether it's uh, an informal group, uh, self-help group that's been established by people with lived experience, can we offer uh, tools for them to monitor whether it's working? Now, of course, you can simply ask people, is it working? But sometimes people, some people find value in using a, a more organized and systemic or systematic way of tracking what's working. And sometimes it's hard to find out what's working and what was it that, that I did that made me feel better yesterday. And, and so being able to offer that way, that type of evidence that is allows people to try things out and see, well, did that work? As opposed to simply building our care systems uh, based on the narrow process of clinical trials. Not everything is suited to a clinical trial. Clinical trials are really helpful when the intervention has uh, potential uh, potentials for danger and harm. Um, and while there's certainly things in mental wellness uh, tool or toolkit that could be harmful, like medications or electroshock therapy or inappropriate professional behavior, when it comes to those non uh, physiological tools, uh, it, it you know the the dangers are 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 not quite as high as say uh, expecting somebody who has had no medical training to be able to perform a successful surgery.
That's really interesting. Just thinking about even collecting evidence in different ways to explore the effectiveness of, of different types of options and treatments that might be effective for people. I'm wondering along the same line, you know, you've been speaking a lot about broadening sort of our approaches to increase access to different types of populations, things that will work for different people, um, and really broadening our thinking on that. And I'm wondering about some of the inequities uh, in access to mental health and addiction support when it comes to things like geography, demographics, um, marginalized populations who are marginalized for different reasons and in different ways. And I'm wondering if you've seen this barrier in your work, this type of barrier, and what are some ways and ideas that you might have or that you've tried that can address it? It brings to mind um, how our society uh, in in, in North, North American wealthy countries is, is you know, it's based on a, a, a capitalist economy. And uh, capitalism is, is based a lot on uh, the principle of scarcity, so that scarce resources are, are valuable. And so um, part of the reason why it's difficult for many people to access care is because care is expensive and in short supply. And so inherently built into our uh, our whole economy and our training systems is our um, professions that um, I think for uh, obvious human reasons expect um, uh, high rates of pay, um, spend a lot of time with training, and um, there's no way that you can fund a system on these scarce resources at that rate of pay. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to lower people's uh, pay. We still need specialists. Um, but one of the one of the ways to to break down equities is uh, or inequities is to make sure that we find a way to reserve that specialty care for those cases and situations where that's the only option. There isn't any other way of building resources. So fundamentally, the inequities have to do, uh, as you said in, in your question, with uh, geography, but also you know economic socioeconomic uh, position of a person and their uh, how much they can afford whether they have any money to pay for for uh, healthcare and of course we know that in our society the difference between the wealthy and and those who uh, don't have um, high salaries or even employed can't access any care except that which is provided. Uh, publicly, so so it's an economic problem that creates um, and supports the inequities, and but it's also cultural in that you need to have the flavors of, um, and the ingredients and the I guess the components in the care system that will satisfy and nurture uh, different different identities. So then, geographically, why is it that we that we have uh, disparities. Well, geographically, we have uh, much more sparsely remotely populated um, areas, especially in, in Canada and many parts of the world, that economically, there's no way that you can uh, bring a, a, a scarce model, a scarcity model of care uh, sustainably into those regions because uh, you'll never have enough 
of this scarce resources to spread them out so thinly. So technology can help with that so that you don't necessarily need to know we've learned from the pandemic. You don't necessarily have to have a psychologist or a psychiatrist in a remote region. They can be, they can be anywhere. And, and we've, we've, we've discovered that it works quite well to do remote work. And, but then you've got technology infrastructure that could limit that um, access. So one of the things that we really need to think about around equity and access is don't overly complicate your programming. There's no need for care to be video-based. It can be using an old technology, like even a phone that isn't a smartphone, a landline uh, service. And so keep keeping some of the programming quite simple, using uh, methods that are you know, tried and trusted informal supports that uh, rural and remote communities might, and communities of uh, our, our marginalized identity populations sometimes have uh, some features, uh, family uh, connections and supports that that more urban, industrialized European structures have lost um have have lost in in their in their family structures and and so really doing a an environmental scan of what exists in rural and remote communities that is actually quite has the potential for for supporting healing not assuming that you need a psychiatrist or psychologist to fix everything when you have um, indigenous elders for example in a community and in another community where you might have a, a social network, which is stronger than you see in some urban communities that don't have a long history of, of connection between families, Ch- checking out what you already have and then organizing that. That's, that's, that's the key is that fragmented, uh, fragmentation is a big problem in the way that we have uh, in our complex communities. Uh, densely populated urban communities we've 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 we haven't had a lot of thought on how to bring the buffet of options forward in a way that that makes sense and that people can see all the choices that's really interesting um you know just around sort of bringing in different types of community resources and opening our minds to what can be supportive and what we do have that people can access easily you know, you mentioned something about cost a little earlier um, in your answer, and I'm wondering, you know, this whole barrier of cost often comes up, and you mentioned the scarcity mindset and that, and I'm wondering if we could explore mm-hmm. this barrier of cost a little bit more and, and just, you know, discuss how we might go about overcoming some of that. Well, I, I think it's a, the answer to that is multifaceted, and I, and I think there's, there's, um, perspectives that need different differing perspectives that need to be honored because there are risks when we when we go to informal care uh, uh, programs and things that cost less it could simply be a justification to deny people that don't have resources you're just going to get this cheap free stuff and it can let funders off the hook for uh, what should be a necessary investment so i just want to put that up front that this is what i'm going to describe isn't meant to be an excuse to lower and to save money on on how to set conditions for wellness. It's the most important thing that we could invest in. 
uh, and it needs lots of uh, attention in our budgeting processes. So having said all that, the one of the ways to, to think about broadening the tent is, is based on research that shows that, that one of the most um, impactful way that a person can become well is to help others. And indigenous communities, you know, uh, communities that have, have existed for thousands of years had this built in. You do not, individualism is, well, well autonomy and, and, and being an individual can have its place. This idea that you just serve yourself or that you get a service is problematic because if you think of just, I need something, I need to receive something, or I'm going to pay money and get something, what you're actually doing is when you professionalize healing and turn it into a transaction, you're actually denying people the opportunity to give to others, which can can be more healing than receiving. And we have research on this that's 30 or 40 years old, or if not longer, longer in terms of social support and peer support, that that uh, simply receiving care does not heal as much as if you're giving it. And so this, this notion of equipping everyone in our community to bring something to that table, back to the buffet metaphor, is uh, you might want to think of it a little bit as a potluck, that when, when you're bringing something and, and offering to care for others, even if you're, you have really severe types of mental health disabilities, Part of what allows us to be human is to realize we still have a capacity in some way to give and make a difference in, in another person's life, to give us that purpose and that connection. And so one of the things that I often think about for the most severely mentally ill people that I have treated as a psychologist is I want to remove any bias I have that they don't have the capacity to give. And I think of some of the people with multiple diagnoses who, who I said in conversations with them, I think the best thing for you to do is to get involved in your community and find a way to give back. And one, partic one particular memory I have is of a person um, with multiple diagnoses, including borderline personality, who when I said, I, I think you should get training to be a peer supporter, she said to me, well, but I have this borderline personality. I mean, I'm, I'm a poster child for failure in relationships. And so that's a deficit way of looking at it. And that's the problem with our diagnostic systems. While they might accurately describe a person's deficits, they fail to capture some of their strengths. And I said to this person, and let's call her Anna. Yeah, but Anna, you've told me that many, many people in your circle come to you and they come to talk to you when they're struggling and you listen and they're very appreciative. And so Anna then went and not only did she get interested in peer support, she actually uh, founded a peer support network. And Anna had spent a lot of time coming and seeing me with her struggles. And well, I think I was a benefit to Anna in the end, and Anna formed a good relationship with me. I actually think I wasted a lot of time with Anna trying to treat her with techniques for borderline personality disorder. And I simply needed to prescribe, make a social prescription, just go out there and do this, Anna. And if I'd had a different assessment tool at the beginning, I probably, that included capturing strengths, I might have known right at the beginning that Anna was 
a person that people were drawn to and um, and for for her capacity to listen. A really interesting story, you know, building on strength and and how people can help each other and how there's such power in relationship and and being able to help others. I'm wondering about those folks who maybe have not yet engaged with the mental health or addiction system, but they're they're experiencing some struggles. Um, and they just don't, they really don't know where to go for help. They don't know what to engage in. And that can actually become a barrier to accessing mental health uh, services and, and resources. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some ways that we can overcome some of those types of barriers where people do want help or they think they may benefit from help, but just don't know where to start? I, I think of some of the amazing positive developments in in when when you ask that question in in the last uh, probably 10 years or so so fundamentally different from when i began my career in the in the uh, uh, early 1990s uh, when i when i began my career it felt like i had to uh, tell people that mental health is important uh, and I had to, it's like, I had to add sort of advertise, you know, it's like, come to, come to get therapy, come to get counseling. Well, now mental health is being discussed in, in almost every corner of society. You're right that not everybody knows where to go, but the good thing is that it's actually being talked about in a lot of circles. So, so what that leads me to do in, in, in response to your question is, our population health level efforts need to focus on, say, taking um, a few more steps beyond what we know in Canada as Bell Let's Talk. You know, so let's talk about our mental health and how can we help people how to talk about mental health and so that, so that almost everyone knows um, basic f- first aid on mental health. Think about pretty well everyone in the population who's a parent would know that if if the forehead of their child is getting warm, you might want to take their temperature. So, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful time to just to, to start having conversations and giving guidance on how to do basic mental health and and to demystify mental health. Anyone can use a thermometer. And my argument is anyone can do mental health work. And so the simplest thing, back to Bell, let's talk, is, okay, what do you mean let's talk? What does that mean? Well, it actually means listen. actually means check in with people. It means monitor how they're doing. And I think of in a university setting where quite often when we've taught mental health first aid, I don't have research to support this, but it seems from what I've observed anecdotally is that quite often the message that people hear staff or faculty at these universities, they hear the last part of mental health first aid, send them to a professional. This is how you refer. I want to reverse that. I want to help people to keep connection, keep talking, keep listening. So for example, a student comes to a professor and says they're struggling with mental health. I don't want the first thing that professor says to be go to the counseling center. I want that professor to as any human being has the capability of doing saying, oh, tell me more. What's going on? I mean, that's what I was trained as a psychologist. You could train a lot of people to say that. Tell me, just have a conversation. And then and then say to that person, you know, why don't you check in with me next week? I'm, I'm you know, 
I, I want to just see how you're doing. Kind of like a, your, your mother or father might say, yeah, I'm going to call you next week or call me next, next Sunday. And, and I, think, I think that's what we have to do is demystify that mental health is something that always requires specialists. Most of the time it doesn't. And, and I'm actually quite confident that uh, people, are, are, people will know the difference when there's something a bit odd going on here where a normal conversation isn't helping. Now I need to, and, and it may not be send somebody somewhere. It might be the listener who might be in a better emotional state might be able to call up someone and say, hey, I've got a friend or someone that's, this is going on. Do you have any ideas? So that we're really building the capacity of our whole society um, to, to focus on what is, is, is not that complicated. I'm thinking about the people, you know, you mentioned that a counselor is not necessarily always the answer for everyone. And many people have a preference for helping themselves. And they'd rather deal with things on their own than reach out to a professional right away, which is, you know, pretty much what you were just sort of speaking about. So how can we keep access flexible enough Mm -hmm. that people can maintain autonomy and access tools and resources to support them and help themselves independently of a professional if they think that that's best and they're ready to engage with that? Well, I think of one of the most successful health systems in the world and 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 it may vary depending on the level of resources so in in some parts that may not have as many resources you might have a nursing station you might not have a primary care physician but primary care the world over is i think been tried and tested and well you could argue there are are issues that with and some some things that could could be improved. Um, the idea of uh, say I can go to my family doctor or I can find a physician. I can go to a walk-in clinic. I can go to a nursing station. There are, of course, places where that may not be possible. But what I like about that system is it's balanced in the sense of expertise and scarcity. It's generalist in in nature, and it doesn't necessarily. Uh, when it's working well, over-prescribe or pathologize when not necessary. So, for example, what I imagine for mental health is that when you don't know where to go and maybe you've talked to family and friends and others, you've tried things on your own, kind of like what you might do if you're limping, if, you know, the the, the the cut on your toe is not healing. You've tried to do it yourself. Uh, what do you do? You go you go to your physician uh, or you go to a nursing station. Why don't we have that for mental health? And, and so what we've found uh, works in many places where we're implementing Step Care 2.0 is this idea of um, helpful conversations or when it's a professional involved, uh, training, training people to really work in some ways the way a family doctor does. Um, you go you go with an expectation. You go when you've tried things on your own and you, you need some medical expertise. You go with the expectation that you're going to walk away from that visit with a resolution or at least a plan. Maybe it's a referral to a specialist. But in my experience, most times that I've gone to my family doctor, I go away with reassurance that everything's fine. 
nothing happens. Or I might get a prescription for a treatment. And my physician says, try that out. You're not feeling better in four or five days. Um, you can come back and see me. Why don't we do that with mental health? Well, in fact, we are now. It's early and, and the data will take a long time to accumulate. But early data, what we're seeing is high satisfaction, uh, reduced wait times, and the satisfaction is both for the providers and the clients. And it's again, it's early days, so there, you know, uh, skeptics will say we'll have to wait and see. My answer to that is, who's going to suffer while we're waiting? And so let's let's get this uh, method up that where there's early evidence that it that it works. There's certainly no indication that it's uh, so far that it causes any harm. And and I, I think that's, um, it's the idea of the, it's actually kind of simple. You know, primary care, well, you know, medical training isn't simple, nor is um, teaching people how to provide this kind of care at a one-at-a-time session. You know, that requires a, a fairly deep skill set, but the answer isn't overly complicated. I think you presented some some really simple options of ways that systems could be transformed. And you mentioned Step Care 2.0 as a methodology that opens access for folks, you know, with that idea that the top of mind concern coming in, that you're going to come in and you're going to walk away with something just like you would at your family doctor. I'm wondering about stigma a little bit and if that type of open access system can help to reduce stigma, but also self-stigma, because I think that sometimes self-stigma can also be a problem. So the fear of getting help, you know, because you, you might be labeled or people might think a certain certain way about you, you don't want to come out and say that you're struggling. How does that open access system kind of kind of help with that? I think there's there's several ways that that does because the way that the one-at-a-time work uh, happens is unlike more common and traditional forms of counseling or, or psychotherapy, there there aren't a lot of predetermined questions asked at the beginning. Um, I've often used the expression care first, uh, ask questions later uh, as, as a way to kind of front load the system. And by that, I mean, we're not going to use 100 quest- questions developed through predominantly Eurocentric research methods to ask what's wrong with people when they come in. And the problem with that is that it, it tends to um, often over diagnose, uh, um, over-pathologize people who identify with uh, marginalized populations. And 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 it's making assumptions. You know, these assumptions are based on a narrow view of what illness is and and wellness is. And it's a Eurocentric view of wellness and illness. And and psychological um, problems are very much culturally defined. There's very little evidence of any biochemical underpinnings of different diagnoses, despite what the pharmaceutical companies would tell you. There's there's simply no evidence of it. There's no mechanism. Nobody's found an organ that uh, or a deficiency in the brain that you can reliably say, wow, that's the illness. So we, first of all, we have to stop calling them illnesses because, because to me, illness means that, that it's some sort of clearly identifiable biological disease that, that that's there. If you ask you ask uh, people from different cultures, what is mental illness? And I think of a colleague of mine uh, from Nigeria who says, in my country, illness, mental illness is something that's, it's about the environment that has impacted me. Whether it's something 
uh, about conditions in my environment, socioeconomic conditions, or even spiritual. It's not a disease in me. And I find that fascinating because it actually lines up with their evidence that has, despite 130, 40 years of looking for this, the biological signatures of all these mental illnesses, we've gotten almost nowhere in identifying them. So, so I think with this one-at-a-time approach, we're, we're throwing away a lot of assumptions that, that should be thrown away. Because they haven't been tested very well, they, there's, or the testing has not revealed any any support for them, and so that assumption that we have the right question to ask needs to be thrown away because we don't. So let's start with asking a person who's coming in, "What's top of mind for you?" And no matter what culture you're from, that opens the gate for them to name, for them to describe what's important. And uh, let's try, let's trust that. And trust is a huge issue for, especially for marginalized identities, for good reason. Why would you trust um, a representative of an oppressive uh, group that has, you know, colonized health? And and so I just think it's a beautiful way that works for everyone to to just say, "Tell me what's what's uh, what's top of mind." That's fantastic. I think, you know, we've we've had such a great discussion today and just explored so many different ways that access can be opened up for folks um, and just different ways of thinking about mental health systems and different ways of approaching mental health systems. Uh, before we end off today, I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd like to add in addition to anything that you've said already. Sure. I, I, I want to return to the the stepped care model, which is more than just the front end and a one at a time care, it it is uh, setting up and communicating to people what is what is the buffet of options. And in one way that we've learned in our work with the Wellness Together Canada program is that there's there's four or five buckets that you can think of. Uh, there's learning. There's a lot of a wealth of information about what contributes to wellness. And most people, if if they're using common sense when they're learning, will be able to tell what's trustworthy and what isn't. And if you're not sure what's trustworthy or, or, or isn't, maybe the first thing you should read is how to trust what you read on the internet. <laughs> you know, read, read something about that. But there's lots of information. I'm I'm a big fan of Dr. Google, but you have to be thoughtful and 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 ask where where is this information coming from? Is it is it an organization or a group that's that uh, you think uh, is trustworthy from your your knowledge and your perspective and your community? Is that a trustworthy source? So there's lots that we can do. There's lots of places where we can learn so that we can do things on our own. There are also lots of programs, books, self-help books, or apps that you can try to teach and courses that you can take to learn on your own. Remember, though, that some of them might not work. Uh, if it sounds odd or sounds dangerous, don't use it. <laughs> you know, but, but I really like the trial and error. With the learning one, you can try reading it if it seems to make sense. It doesn't ask you to do anything that's harmful or dangerous. Try it out. And if it doesn't work, try something else from the buffet. So sometimes we go to the buffet and we don't like the taste. Well, guess what? We're not going to eat that again, but I'm sort of glad I tried it. So the second one in, around apps is really practicing. 
getting uh, finding tools where you can actually do more than just learn. You can actually try things out, practice, and apps can be useful. Self-help books can be useful. Another bucket is connecting. So uh, connecting with anyone that you trust or you know from experience is can be a good listener, but also looking now as we're building out health systems that have peer support networks, there may be some organized and supervised peer support networks that you can, you can uh, draw on to make that connection. Remembering that by connecting, it isn't just about you being sick or you being the one that needs needs it's we all need and it can actually be much more empowering to to have a bit of back and forth i'm supporting you you're supporting me it can be really rewarding to give and then if none of those things work you can reach out to professional care and that can be as simple as a, a physician it might be a spiritual leader it might be an indigenous healer it could be a counselor or a psychologist or a social worker and, and then the, the last thing is, again, this monitoring. If you're going to do trial and error, make sure you find a way to sort of track. Maybe you keep a journal. It's like, oh, I tried this and it worked or it didn't. So was, that's what I'd like to leave you with, with those, that thinking of, of the many, many options that could be put into those buckets. That's fantastic. I think it really simplifies the types of things that are out there for us and available to us to support our mental health at different levels. And when we're ready to engage with different things and keep trying until we find something that works. So I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today. It's been such a great conversation. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you once again for joining us on the Still Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. For further information about access to mental health services, Step Care Solutions and the Step Care 2.0 model and the articles referenced in this episode, as well as the links to resources, please see the show notes from today's episode. Thanks for tuning in once again. We look forward to having you back next time.